Again, don't forget Saturday at 5. I said 5.30 in the first service, but probably most of them won't be coming to a contemporary service anyway. So Saturday at 5, if you want to come join us as we try to figure out a different service. We are studying 1 Corinthians 13. You know, when, when Jesus himself was asked, what, what, is, what, is it, what do you do to obey God? He said, you love God and love others. Which is weird because, you know, there's 613 commands in the Old Testament. Not counting, including the big ten. The ten commandments. So, there are a lot of commands in Scripture and Jesus boils it all down to one word. Love God and love other people. And sadly, we, we have taken the word love and we have turned it into a mushy, sentimental word. We throw it around for everything. You know, I, I love your hair. I'd love to have hair. You know, whatever works for you. But the, there, I'm still looking at that picture. And, uh, the, um, uh, you know, we, we, we've made love uh, kind of a little syrupy emotion, but it really doesn't cost you much. In fact, if it does, you can fall out of it with no real harm done, right? But in Scripture, the word love is, is how the Lord summarized all that it means to obey God. And as such, it must be a pretty powerful concept. In fact, it's the motivation for why God sent his son, by this God showed his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is, it is the primary demonstration in all of time of God's remarkable love for us. That we who were sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin, willfully disobedient to him, we who were estranged from him, alienated from him in rebellion against him, he loved us when we were totally unlovely. And all he asked from us is that we return the favor, that we love him, the triune God, and then we love the others that come into contact. And the Corinthian church was a church that would have been, you know, they, they would have been dysfunctional anywhere. They put the fun in dysfunctional. They were a, a church that, that had all kinds of issues. And, and as I've studied it, I've become convinced that the outline of the book of Corinthians, it all points to chapter 13. Because even though they have all of this division and, you know, uh, sexual sin and, and arguments and all this other nasty stuff going on, I think the whole book points to chapter 13 because fundamentally disobedience is always about a failure to love. And so in chapter 13, he says, okay, now let me give you the positive solution to all of your mess, learn to love. And so in the first three verses, we, we saw that he compares love to the things that we typically use to solve problems. You know, if, if I have all wisdom and all knowledge, you know, we love wisdom and knowledge, but don't have love, then, you know, I'm not worth much. If, if I, I speak in the tongues of, I'm eloquent, speaking the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm just a lot of noise. If, you know, in other words, he, he goes through different things that we lean on just as representative samples and says, but, you know, all of those, even in the body of Christ, even among us religious people, if we don't do those, if, I mean, if we don't do love, then we're really wasting our time. And it kind of shocks you because you realize how often we go to other things to solve our problems rather than love. 
We go to power, we go to argument, we go to eloquence, we go to, you name it, rather than love. And, and God screams from heaven, but I had you as a problem, and I loved you by giving my son. So then in verse 4 through 7, in the first phrase of verse 8, we'll get to that. He starts helping us understand what love is because, because, because he knows that we will pervert love. See, the, the way we treat love in our society now is inherently selfish. It, to love something means it does something for me today. When you hear the description of love today, what you primarily mean, understand that it's describing someone or something that does something for me. That's why I love it. But that's not scriptural love, right? And he starts demonstrating that by the characteristics in chapter, verses 4 through 7. The last week we looked at love is patient and kind. Patient and kind. You know, I don't know about you, I've prayed more times than I care to admit. Lord, give me patience now. And it, it's not a good prayer to pray. Um, patience and kindness actually are two of the primary simple ways that we show love in our day-to-day -day life. In other words, most of our relationships we have in life aren't deep, right? They're, they're, they're at work, they're in the neighborhood, and they're brief, momentary. You know, you exchange few niceties, and, and you don't have the opportunity to demonstrate the depths of how good a person you are, right? So how do you demonstrate love in those casual relationships? Ironically, patience and kindness are, are, are two of the most obvious. Patience and kindness, you know. Patience when driving. Patience when driving. Anybody else struggle with that? I'm the only one? Ah, thank you. An honest person. And kindness. You know, day-to-day -day life, love is dressed in kindness. And yet we live in a world that a kind word is becoming more and more a rarity, right? Right? We view relationships as transactional. What you give to me, I give to you. So if it's, if it's a, a person waiting on us at a restaurant, then we treat them transactionally. We don't even think of treating them kindly. Right? Life becomes a transaction. It's all about what you give me, and I will give back to you according to what, how I value what you did for me. But that's not love. Love calls us to kindness. Today I want to do another one that's, I think, convicting. It's not jealous. Love is not jealous. Now, jealousy is an interesting word because I, I spent a lot of time um, looking it up this week, and, and there are three different words that are used for the idea. The jealous, jealousy, envy, and coveting. Scripturally, all three of them are used. And if, if you go online, for instance, and, and start looking it up, you'll find all of these long articles trying to distinguish between jealousy and envy and everything else. But yet, ironically, if you look at multiple translations of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, some say jealousy, some say envy. <laughs> you know, so the translators didn't realize how much difference there are. And the reality is, in day-to-day -day language, we tend to use them similarly or interchangeably, although we'll acknowledge there is some difference. Um, 
As I mentioned, it's in verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. The word that is used there is interesting because it's the word we get zeal or zealot from. It is, a, it is the expression of zeal. And often is used positively. In chapter 12, verse 31, the introduction to chapter 13, he said, but earnestly desire, zealously desire the better gifts. In other words, it's used in just a few verses forward as a positive flame where, where we're called upon to deeply desire something that's good. But here it is used in a negative sense of when we earnestly desire, deeply desire something that quite frankly is not ours. Um, the 10th commandment, as you know, is Exodus 20, 17. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is there a selfish, jealous desire of something someone has. Uh, a book that had a huge impact to me as a high school student was uh, Francis Schaeffer's uh, True Spirituality. By the way, don't underestimate high school kids. Don't, don't think that they can only read little light books and get value out of them. You'll be shocked at what they can consume if we just ask them. True Spirituality was a huge book for me in high school. Huge book. And, and in it, Schaefer makes the point that when you read the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul admits that he felt pretty good about his righteousness as long as he was looking at those outward commands. But when he got to coveting, that's, that's the one he mentions particularly as the one he struggled with. Why? Because it's a sin of the heart. See, jealousy, coveting, envy, those are issues of the heart that we can hide really well. In fact, most of us do. But the fact of the matter is, they, in the New Testament and old of the Bible, they were, they were attributes that pop up repeatedly and cause all kinds of problems. My, my, my dad always referred to jealousy as the green-eyed monster. So as I was looking at this, I thought, I wonder where he got that. Ironically, Shakespeare. My mom had an uh, issue with Shakespeare as well, or Pakeshire. Um, she, she always said, this too shall pass. She'd say, it's in the Bible, look it up. And I finally did. I said, Mom, it's not in the Bible. It's, it's Shakespeare. This too shall pass is Shakespeare. She said, well, it should be uh, in the Bible. And dad would repeatedly say uh, of envy, it was the green-eyed monster. So when I started looking up, it's from Othello, which I haven't read lately. But listen to this, such incredible insight. He said, oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. It doth mock the meat it feeds on. It eats you up. It eats you up. Webster says this, while many people believe that jealous means something, fearing someone will take what you have and envious means desiring what someone else has, historical usage shows that both mean covetous and are interchangeable when describing desiring someone else's possessions. 
However, when referring to romantic feelings, only jealous can be used to mean possessively suspicious as in a jealous husband. So all three words are so closely related to be almost interchangeable. So I would define jealousy as a resentful rivalry for affection or things. It's a resentful rivalry. I am your rival because you have something that I want. Let's look at it in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As I, as I said, I personally believe that, that Paul is using love to solve the problems of 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 3, he mentions specifically jealousy. Brothers and sisters, verse 1, I, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but instead as people who are worldly, literally fleshly, mere babies in Christ. So I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly or fleshly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like people? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What's going on in the Corinthian church is they've chosen up sides. Everybody has decided which preacher they like most. Now, of course, that never happens now, right? But they have divided up into, well, they've chosen two of the greatest leaders of the New Testament church, the Apostle Paul, whom God personally chose to take the message of the gospel of the Gentile world, and Apollos, who is one of the most brilliant preachers in all the New Testament. Both had had an impact in the Corinthian church, and he says, I can't believe you're lining yourselves up and saying, well, I follow this guy and I follow that one. And, and, and when you first read that, you think, well, how is that jealousy? You know what I mean? I mean, I, that's between Paul and Apollos, right? I'm aligning myself. Let me kind of walk through that with you. When we choose sides like that, we, and, and when we start bleeding that over into jealousy of how we view the other side, we're inherently saying, I'm better because I've chosen the right side. And in doing so, we're, we're jealous of the influence, jealous of the popularity of another person. Now, this doesn't mean we can't, we can't disagree. Of course we disagree with other people. We're, we're supposed to disagree. You know, um, Billy Graham's wife said, if a husband and wife never uh, uh, disagree, then one of them's not necessary. Uh, so even in marriage, and all the women are nodding. That disturbs me. But at any rate, the, whether it's in a marriage or a church or whatever, the reality is disagreement is healthy. I've always said I wanted a church where people had different views because that's how iron sharpens iron. If, it, if everyone's the same, then we just polish each other. We don't sharpen each other, right? So it's not a matter of that there's no difference. It's when we start aligning ourselves to the extent that we create divisions, and that's a form of jealousy, coveting that influence that someone else has. So you can just hear them saying, well, you know, Paul's a pretty good theologian. He's written some good books, but he's not near the communicator that Apollos is. I mean, Apollos, that man can keep a crowd. And they say, well, yeah, Apollos is just one of those shallow communicators, but Paul's got real meat. He feeds me. Sound familiar? See, it still goes on. It still goes on. And, and oftentimes, when there's division among Christians, we, we don't admit what the real issue is. Why is that? Because it would make us look bad 
to admit we're jealous or, or something like that. Instead, we cover over the division with something that sounds much better. I don't think they teach the word as accurately or they don't feed me as well or in other words the, we often will cover over the division with something else when really what's going on is there's something like jealousy and I'm not, I'm not bashing your gourds over this some of the most jealous people in the world are preachers preachers struggle with this I mean because you know typically we're not going to get rich doing this job if we do, there's something else going on, right? I mean, you know, we're not going to get a lot of stature. So the only thing we got is, you know, how many are you running? An old friend of mine who grew up Southern Baptist and went to Harvard Divinity School used to say that he'd get in a meeting with Southern Baptist preachers. And this isn't picking on Southern Baptists. It's just what he was. Presbyterians, what I am, uh, Bible church, we all do it. Well, first thing you want to know is, how big's your church? How many are you running? How many are you baptizing? How many are in the bus ministry? How many are in your small group program? How many are in your discipleship program? How many? We, we fall into the same thing to build our egos, right? And, and, and we show signs of jealousy. We, well, you know, he's a fine preacher, but you know. Those dark rooms and loud music, is that really a good thing? You know, I mean, in other words, in other words, uh, in other, I'm sorry, it's, it's, I got too much sleep last night. It's, I, I slept all the way till 5.30. It was amazing. It was amazing. So, Julie doesn't like it when I get too much sleep. I'm convinced that about 3 in the morning she pokes me real good because if I'm a little sleepier, I'm easier to deal with. It's, um, so, we preachers can follow in too and, and start showing jealousy toward other people and, and criticizing. Why? Because why is it? Because of our own insecurity. It's a reflection of our own insecurity. Am I really accomplishing anything for the Lord? Especially if I don't have 10,000 in four locations. I mean, the reality is the green eyed monster invades us and in all, it, it does it related to our appearance, our possessions. Our children? Have you ever been in circles where you realize people are bashing other kids because that other kid's had more success than my kids, so therefore that kid must be, you know, wrong, right? I mean, how evil can it be that we would actually criticize children to make ourselves feel better about our children? Jealousy is incredibly powerful incredibly powerful and it, it, had, it had taken the Corinthian church and divided them but it, it, it's so masked it, it's so subtle it's so easily hidden because none of us says you know I'm jealous of their kids because their kids are perfect and mine are little knuckleheads like their mother or, I mean father right we don't want to say that. But jealousy ultimately harms. Proverb 27.4. Proverb 27.4 says, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Anger is cruel 
And fury can be overwhelming, but no one can even stand before jealousy. I personally think there are some reasons for that. I think anger tends to be episodic. It tends to be in a reaction to one thing. Fury tends to be a response to one event or one action, whereas jealousy tends to be, go deeper to identity and character. It's, it, jealousy seethes under, under surface for a long time. And consequently, it, it, it can just flat run over you over time. Not surprisingly, the book of James deals with jealousy. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was so practical in the way he, he applied the Christian life to, to us. James chapter 3, verse 16, he says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Envy, preachers have it. Selfish ambition, you'll have disorder and every evil practice. Chapter 4, verse 2, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, same word, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you don't ask God. Church divisions, marriage decay, friendships, and other relational damage is often because of the quiet destruction brought on by jealousy and envy. It is a sepsis of the soul. Like sepsis, it is an infection that enters into our very system and colors how we look at other people. And we are a society today that is eaten up with it. We, we, uh, that's, think about the division that we see that's rooted in jealousy, whether class jealousy, economic jealousy, power jealousy, political jealousy. It has become uh, something that defines how we relate to everyone by comparison, by comparing. How do they look compared to me? And like sepsis, it will ultimately kill. It will, it will bring the kind of division that will ultimately destroy Let me give you one example. Jealousy grows. It always, it, it starts small and grows like cancer, and that's why I keep calling it that. There are multiple examples, in, uh, you know, uh, Joseph's brothers throw him in a hole and sell him, which is not generally accepted behavior in a family, even in East Texas. And, and Saul and David, you know, Saul tries to kill David repeatedly just because he's playing the harp. You know, I mean, that's generally not good. You know, J James and John go to Jesus and say, hey, Lord, can we get the best seats in the throne room? And the other disciples get mad because they thought of it first, more jealousy. You can see it in multiple places, but I'd like to illustrate it with the very first time it occurs, and that's with the story of Cain and Abel. Now, I told my Wednesday morning men's group, I always struggle with Cain and Abel. I can't remember who the good one is. You know, I, I, and I blame an old high school friend. I had a buddy in high school named Mark Cain, and he ran for student body president, and his, his, his slogan was, Cain is Abel. And ever since, I've just been totally blotched with it. Um, and I met him again a few years back. He's very successful, uh, did really well. But 
he's still Abel. But Abel is the good guy and Cain is the bad one. Let me read it to you real quickly, John, uh, Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. By the way, the hint of the division is Cain just brought some stuff, the fruits of the garden. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Uh, If you understand uh, the Hebrew thought, Abel brought the best stuff, Cain brought some stuff. And that reflects their heart attitude in their worship. That's what the distinction is. So the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? Isn't it interesting that jealousy doesn't, (laughs) jealousy doesn't ask what should I do? The Lord is saying to Cain, Address your problem. What does jealousy do? It's your fault. See the subtle change? That's why it's so insidious. Now, none of you have ever done that. But, but sometimes when we fall into a situation, when we start trying to figure out how it's everyone else's fault, that may be an indication that that's not healthy. So the Lord says, just can't, just do the right thing. But if you do not do what is right, I love this figure. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Ever think of that visual image of sin like a lioness crouching at your door, just waiting to pounce and pervert your thought? So Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Because of jealousy, he became a murderer and a liar. Because it's a sepsis of the soul. Let me, so part of what we have to ask is, when when I look at other people, am I able to rejoice in their blessings? Or do I become critical somehow? Because love wants the best for other people, right? So, so if, if you have financial success, can I, can I say, isn't it great that you have financial success rather than, well, who did you steal from, you know, or, or whatever. I mean, in other words, isn't it easy to, you know, if, if your kids turn out well, well, you know, it's not my fault. Somehow it's something else. In other words, anytime we move from a positive response to a negative one, that's, that's an indication that, that there's something else going on. Can I, can I point out what I think it's a failure of? First of all, it's a failure in our love for God because we don't love Him enough to trust Him that whatever we have is enough. We don't love Him enough to trust Him that If he's made us short and incredibly handsome, that's enough, right? Um, 
Whatever it is that he's given us, we love him and trust him enough to, to believe that that's enough. Obviously, it's a failure in our love of God. I mean, love of others. Jealousy is because, because we don't want what's best enough for them to celebrate what they have. Instead, we're jealous of it. It's all about us. Rather than, than seeing that how they do is separate from how we do, we make it personally. But fundamentally, you know what it is? And I don't mean to sound pop psychology here. I'm not, I'm not Oprah or Dr. Phil, but it's a failure to love ourselves in a healthy way. Because we've let our identity to be defined by circumstances and possessions and other things rather than shaping our identity based on the fact that the immortal, unchanging, all-powerful, all-loving, all-merciful God of the universe gave his son for us to, die, uh, to live. See, if, if we believe the gospel enough that it totally reshaped our view of ourselves, then we wouldn't have a problem with jealousy. Because what they have, what they, uh, what they experience, none of those things matter because you know who I am? I'm, I'm a child of the king. You know who I am? I'm loved by Jesus. You know who I am? I'm someone for whom the all-powerful, almighty, eternal God gave his son. And if our identity is defined by the gospel, we're not tempted to be jealous of other people. But the problem is we allow our identity to be defined by what kind of car we have, what kind of kids we have, what kind of you know, influence we have, you name it, whatever your temptation is. It's love and jealous. Love isn't jealous because jealousy causes strife and division. So ask yourself, are there things that make you critical and negative toward other people, is there jealousy somewhere under there? be an interesting question. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are very, very human, and as humans, we struggle with this kind of thing, that we often fool ourselves into thinking we're just being honest when in reality our flesh is defining our response to those that are around us. Forgive us, Father, that we can be so worldly. Teach us what it is to love others so much that we celebrate how your goodness has touched them and are thankful for how your goodness has touched us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.